You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. My name is Curtis Arnold. I serve as one of the elders here. Our passage today is we continue on in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. In the Pew Bibles, and the seat back in front of you, it's on page 655. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it brings us each time that we come to it. We pray now for the time as Jeremy leads us through this passage, that you will quicken our hearts and our minds that we might more obediently serve you and honor Jesus in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Curtis. According to church history, the oldest living disciple of Jesus was John, the beloved disciple. John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote Revelation. First, second, and third John are his as well. He had been thrown on the island of Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. But when that was all said and done, whereas all the other disciples of Jesus ended up dying, according to church history, martyrs, deaths, John, he makes it to 93, some think 94. And the church where he ended his time on earth was the church in Ephesus, according to church historian Jerome, 300 AD. Ephesus was a super cool church, the church at Ephesus. I think Mill Creek has some really awesome people in it, uh, by the looks of it, some awesome guests this morning. We're so glad you've joined us. But, but But the church of Ephesus was awesome because when you went to their membership meeting and they're like, we were planted by a guy you may know. His name was Paul. That's who planted Ephesus. And you may know some of the former staff members. There was this famous guy named Apollos that we read about in the book of Acts. He used to serve here. Priscilla and Aquila, Hall of Fame type staff. Their pastor, when John showed up, was none other than Timothy. That's the same one from 1st and 2nd Timothy. So it's a little bit of a who's who's list. Like 
Last I checked, there's not really a pastoral hall of fame. But if there was, some of the guys in Ephesus would have been in it. And I sort of wonder what would have happened the morning John walked in. Like, if they had a greeting team, they're like, oh, nice to meet you. What's your name? Have you ever, have you been here at this church before? No. Okay, I'd love to introduce you to our pastor. Pastor Timothy, this is John. He walked with Jesus. <laughs> John, uh, he was, you know, he's, he's one of the original. Original gangster was Jesus. So uh, as an OG, he would sometimes get the opportunity to say a few words in the worship service, which I think is right. I mean, if you walked with Jesus and you wrote some parts of the Bible, you should be able to say a few words when it's time to gather. So if any of you have done that, feel free to talk to me afterwards. love to give you a few minutes. John, when he'd stand up and give a word, um, he, he, he's like 93, 94. He can't actually walk. I don't think he has the energy for a sermon, so he would do a sermon in a sentence, and it was literally the same sentence every time. He would get up, and he would say, little children love one another. A couple weeks go by. John's disciples, they carry him in. John, would you like to say a word to the church? I'd be happy to. Little children love one another. I sort of envisioned there in the church at Ephesus that on the back row were some teenagers who kind of, you know, cut up. And after hearing the same little sermon in a sentence for like three years in a row, my guess is like one of the 15-year-old boys looked at his friend and was like, oh my goodness, they're going to ask John to say a few words and you guess what he's going to say? Little children love one another. And I'll be darned, John did it. And, and, and then... Evidently, it got to be annoying enough that finally somebody just said, why do you say the same thing? Like, come up with a new sermon and a sentence, bro. And, and this is what John said in response. The reason I keep repeating it is because it is the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. So to any snarky person who had a problem with John's little children love one another, his response is, it's enough. Because this is what the Lord commanded. Love one another. Reminds me of Jesus' command in John 13, 35. This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. Jesus says, the world will know we are Christians by our love. And it seems to me, whenever I visit with folks who either consider themselves Christians or consider themselves godless pagans, nice godless pagans, but godless pagans nonetheless, when I talk to people, it seems interesting to me that according to Jerome, John's last sermon in a sentence was always little children love one another. Jesus is known as saying the world will know we are Christians by our love, and those who consider them Christians would go, yeah, 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 love is very important to our faith. Love is crucial to the faith. And even some of my neighbors who just live a not so far away from here, if we were to talk to some of them who would never want to attend a worship service and you were to ask them, how should Christians treat each other, I think they would confirm what everybody seems to agree with, and that is this. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be loving. I don't think anybody's disputing that Christians should be loving. And so we find ourselves here in 2021 where the Romans find themselves... 8065, and the unity of the church is threatened. And, and, 
And Paul decides to write a letter, and one of the primary reasons he writes the letter is because the very fabric of the church in Rome was falling apart as it had all of these divisions. And here we are 2,000 years later. I think if we asked some of you, we asked some of your neighbors, it's me or some of my neighbors, I think folks would be right to say, Church? Who goes to church? Y'all are hypocrites. Y'all talk all day long about love, 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 but at the end of the day, y'all don't really love each other. You're no different than everybody else. It seems so simple. We're just supposed to love each other, so what's the problem, church? Why is it that when we get accused of being hypocrites, many times they have a good point? This morning, we come to Romans 12, where Paul is going to take the doctrine of love like a diamond. He's going to hold it up to us. He's going to hold it up to us, and then he's going to turn it slowly, and he's going to show us all of these different dimensions to love. And what it's going to lead us to consider then for us today is how might this gospel doctrine of love actually manifest itself in our lives. How, Paul, are we to love one another? That's what he's going to unpack in our text today. And he does it in two ways. He's going to first talk to those inside the church. And it's going to give us some opportunities to consider how we relate here at Mill Creek. And then he's going to pivot and talk about how Christians are to relate to those outside the church. Okay, so Paul has two big ideas in a text. How do we love those that we're in a church with? How are we to love those we are relating to that are outside our church? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Romans 12, verses 9 to 21? I want to show you from Paul's writing how we draw these conclusions. As you make your way there, you perhaps know that there's a little bit of a debate about when Paul shifts from those inside the church to those outside the church. And, and if you're wondering, Jeremy, how did you decide to... The, the paragraph, Jeremy, if I'm, if I'm looking at it, it, it cuts it at 14. Why are you saying it doesn't change till 17? My answer is because there's this word one another in verse 16. One another is a clue that Paul's talking to those inside the church, and then he moves it in 17. That's how we split his two big ideas. Let's jump into the first one. Uh, heads up, this first one has 11 subpoints, which maybe to you is like, Good grief, man. Have you never been to a preaching class in your life? <laughs> Point one has 11 subpoints. Um, well, the way we preach here is we just preach whatever Paul says. So if you've got a problem with the mail, you feel free in heaven. You just sit him down, let him know you didn't appreciate those 11. Um, I'm just delivering the mail, so I'm going to do my best to get you through 11. If you're feeling overwhelmed, I am too. I hope you did some hand exercises if you're going to be writing them down. But let's be faithful to what Paul has written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's number one in verse 9. How do we love those inside the church? It begins with genuine love. Genuine love from the text. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. The original word for genuine love here actually means without hypocrisy. Back in Paul's day, a hypocrite was a stage actor who would put on a mask and they would pretend to be somebody they're not. And, and what Paul's saying is, if you're going to be a Christian in a church, don't act like that. Don't show up at a worship service and put a mask on and pretend to be somebody you're not. Love genuinely. Love people when they're looking. Love people even when they're not looking. You are to love genuinely. And one of the ways you do that is by hating evil and holding fast to good. Hating evil, hold fast to good. Paul's explaining to the 
Romans. We want to be the kind of Christian church that discerns the difference between good and evil and loves genuinely by clinging to the good. All right, we're very quickly into it, but here's a question for application to consider. Christian, do you hate evil and hold fast to good? Do you hate evil and hold fast to good? This is one of the ways that you are to genuinely love. In fact, hate evil actually is probably getting lost a little bit in our vernacular. The the original language would be violently hating evil. Frankly, I think this is one of the ways to tell if you're a Christian. If you've ever wondered, man, I don't know if I'm really a Christian pastor. Like, how would I really know? One of the questions is this. Do you hate sin? Do you hate it? Not do you ever mess up and have you ever struggled with sin? That's a different question. I'm saying in your heart of hearts, do you hate sin? To love genuinely is to hate evil and hold fast to good. Uh, Number two, love like family. Here's how Paul wants the church to interact, to love like family. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. The city of Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love, unless you're a quarterback for the Eagles and don't win games and they don't love you for that, but they're supposed to. Philadelphia, that word Philadelphia is here in the text. It's where we get the idea of family-like love. And what Paul's saying is if you are in the Roman church as a Christian, you're to love one another like a family. This is how we're to love those inside the church, like a family, which if your family's like mine, you show up at Thanksgiving and there's a few people in your family, you're like, man, I love that person. I love them. I'm so glad they're in our family. And then there's like crazy Uncle Jeremy. (laughs) Oh dear, he's here. But your family, right? And the way family works is no matter what, thick and thin. Or the the way a daddy loves his kids, no matter what. Now, maybe you didn't grow up in that family where your daddy loved you no matter what or your mom didn't love you no matter what, but that's the picture it's supposed to be. And if our church is going to be the kind of church Paul's speaking about, it's the kind of place where we love you no matter what. And that goes both ways. You, you love me no matter what. And I know it's awkward, and sometimes we, at Thanksgiving we started talking about politics, and that got weird, so next year let's not talk about that. And maybe there's some stuff that we kind of tiptoe around at times, but a family-like love. If, if you're a guest of Mill Creek and you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if Mill Creek's going to be kind of the place we lock in. They're just cards on the table. This is the kind of love we want to have for one another. Like if you're in, we're in. And it's for good. We're going to have family-like love. Question for you, Mill Creekers. Do you share a family-like love for one another? No matter what. Number three, honoring one another. Outdo one another in showing honor, Paul says. What does this idea of honor even mean? The one definition I really appreciated was, the word honor means to treat someone or something as valuable and precious. To treat someone as valuable and precious. Mill Creeker, if you're here, part of this church, are you treating those in the body as valuable and precious? Well, I would if they'd treat me that way, but nobody here is treating me that way. That's not how it works. It's not if you feel good, then you can treat others honorably, but it's we honor and where to outdo one another 
in showing honor. Here's question for application number three. Are you honoring one another? Are you honoring one another? I think Paul has in mind the disunity that's beginning to break this church apart. He's thinking, man, if you would, if you would treat one another as valuable and precious, this would go so far. Root out the lack of love. Number four, passionately serving from the text. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. These words, slothful, zeal, fervent, they're, they're rarely used in our vocabulary. I mean, maybe your kid comes up to you and says, oh, Father, I've been so slothful. And would you please help me be fervent in zeal? And my kids are normal. They don't say speak that way. This is, this is a picture of somebody who's apathetic and quite lazy in their response to how we're supposed to be interacting at a church. We aren't supposed to be the kind of people who just kind of sit back on our haunches and let everything else happen to us and whatever, I guess. It, it reminds me of a concert I went to not so long ago. And on the, on the front row, not so far from us, was a dad with what I think were his two teenage sons. And dad is like gripping the rail for the whole concert. And the longer the concert goes, the more amped up dad and the two boys got. Until the end, it's almost, I mean, if we were anywhere else, you would think, this is weird. But they are just like singing every word. They know every song. Whatever the next song is, they, they look at each other like, the, like Santa Claus is on the stage. It's like, we can't get enough. And in fact, I would call it wonderful worship. Awful God, wonderful worship. And, and I kept thinking, oh, man, the boys, they're just doing what dad does. They're just doing what dad does. So dad's screaming his head off, and the boys are screaming their head off. Dad's singing all the lyrics. Boys are screaming all the lyrics. And I'm envisioning that dad, when they were just little kids, was like, I'm going to play this song on Alexa all day long because I love this band. You're going to love this band too, kids. And had this picture, albeit a more of an extroverted natural response. Some of you are an introverts. You wouldn't raise your voice at a concert ever the rest of your lives, and so I get it. That may not be your thing. But the idea of being fervent in spirit and the, the idea of your kids watching you had me wondering if part of the reason that so many teenagers end up leaving, graduating from high school and then graduating from the faith is because they watch mom and dad, and frankly, mom and dad are just going through the motions. Just going through the motions. And, and, and my guess is these two boys, someday, they're going to bury their dad. I bet they still love the music because dad loved that music. And it makes me want to be the kind of church where our kids would watch us, mom and dad. Whatever your style is, you don't have to grip a rail and jump up and down and yell your head off. But that your kids would watch you and go, my mom and dad, man, they love Jesus. They really love Jesus. And I want to love Jesus like them. Let's... Let's love Jesus by passionately serving and doing it in a way that our kids can watch us. That's the question for application here. Are you passionately serving? Are you passionately serving? In my youth pastor days, parents would come to me and be like, man, I'm really worried about my kid. I really want them to love Jesus. Like, can I drop them off, youth pastor, and can you, like, fix them? It's like, look, man, mom and dad, you're going to get what you, you're going to get what you are most of the time. Let's be people passionately serving. There's those around us watching us. Let's passionately serve. Number five, rejoice despite tribulation. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, Paul writes, which maybe surprises us to think, wait, there can be tribulation in the church? Can there really be tribulation in the church? If, if you're new to Mill Creek and you're thinking this is one of those churches that doesn't have any tribulation inside of it, I got a surprise for you. 
Like if you've been around very long, you know there's tribulation in the church, like a family. Or if you're thinking, oh, then I can't be a member here at Mill Creek, no problem. I'm happy to give you the addresses of some other churches, but good luck. Christians aren't to love blindly or rejoice mindlessly. There is tribulation we experience inside of a church, but we still rejoice in hope knowing and there is a day that's coming. There's a day that's coming when finally all of the sinful issues that I may realize or not realize I'm bringing to the surface or that these people that I'm supposed to be in church with are, are knowingly or unknowingly bringing to the surface, there, there, there is a day when all of that's going to go and we're going to be able to rejoice and not have any tribulation. Question for us, are you rejoicing despite tribulation? Number six, constant in prayer, directly from the text. Be constant in prayer. If you're here and so far you're like, man, Paul hasn't stepped on my toes at all yet. Okay, congratulations, welcome to number six, constant in prayer. Because I have yet to meet anybody who, who when asked, hey, how's your prayer life? Are you, are you crushing it when it comes to prayer life? None of y'all have ever said to me, yeah, I'm crushing it. Man, I have no conscience issues about my prayer. I pray constantly. I pray without ceasing every day, all day long. Man, I'm getting it done. It's overwhelming and humiliating to consider that we who are commanded to pray so rarely do. We who have such a high view of God... Allegedly, we think really big thoughts of God. Man, he is sovereign. He has all power. He's all control. He actually created the universe with, a, with, with just spoken words. And he has given us total access anytime, anywhere. You can go to the Lord in prayer, and we rarely do. Early in this series, I encouraged all of us who consider themselves Mill Creekers to pray for unity. I, again, ask you to Pray constantly for unity. Pray that we would be unified. Man, the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the enemy would love to do nothing more than just nuclear bomb everybody in this church, blow up our church, blow up our families, blow up our kids, blow up our relationship, and just make us a stinking mess to the eyes of the world. The enemy's attacking us. We want to pray for unity. Number seven, live generously. From the text, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In the Roman church that was struggling with all of these ethnic divisions and strong views that were conscience issues that opposed each other, what a great antidote to a church that's being split apart to say, invite each other over to your house and generously relate to each other. Give your money and your time and your love to one another. This would begin to mend the division of the Roman church. True then, true now. Let us be the kind of people who are very generous by opening up our homes. Hey, can I have you come over? And, and giving freely that, that our hearts would know and the world might know. Our money, our time, our energy, those aren't of ultimate value to us. Jesus is. Are you living generously? Number eight, blessing when persecuted. From verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Paul already tipped his hand about tribulation in verse 12 here. He's taking it even further and saying, hey, when someone inside the church persecutes you, you don't give them back eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. When somebody in your family does something very awful to you, 
You don't give them a taste of their own medicine. Jeremy, I thought the Bible said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, though. No, that's not the New Testament ethic. That's not the Christian ethic. That's not the way of Jesus. When we're persecuted, we're to bless, which I confess is super hard. I mean, the moment somebody comes at me and they go, hey, Jeremy, what about ding, ding, ding? First thing I want to do is like lawyer up and let them have it. How dare you think you can confront me? I'm going to blow you down. Nuclear bomb, please, right here, right now. But we're not to retaliate. We are to bless. And like this happens in a church, and this happens in our family, right? Why is it that the people we love the most are the people we often hurt the most? Question for us, do you bless when persecuted? Do you bless when persecuted? Number nine way, the ninth dimension of this gospel diamond that Paul is moving for us to know how to love one another, it is to sympathize. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In a church this size, right now, there are inevitably some of you who are so excited. You're so happy, at least in my house, because it's candy day, baby. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, baby, and I got some candy dad tax I'm about to exact on y'all. Where'd the Reese's peanut butter cups go, dad? <laughs> happy. It's exciting. It may not just be because of candy day, whatever it is. Man, things are going well for you, and you want to celebrate. Wonderful. Others of you, though, uh, today, right now, your heart is heavy. And you're, you're mourning. And I don't know why you're mourning right now unless you've told me, but you're in a really tough spot. And so right now, in this very moment, there are people in this worship service who are experiencing both. Experiencing both. And what Paul says, if we're going to be a church that loves one another, that we are going to sympathize with both sides. Both sides. It, one of the clearest examples to me was when uh, my wife and I first got married, we were trying to have kids, and we were struggling with infertility. If, if you've ever struggled with infertility, man, Brooke and I have been there. And it just felt like as we couldn't have kids, everybody else got to have kids. That was real for us. So our, just our friends and newly married, and we're in this group, and it's just like every other week, somebody's like, we're pregnant! And everybody says, yes! And Brooke and I are trying to be happy for them, but it hurts. And this is like one of my wife's superpowers. She can just celebrate with people and, and everybody loves her for it, myself included. And um, she's like putting on the baby shower for one of our best friends, even though it had been years. And even though people at church would say things they didn't realize what they were saying, they'd say, Jeremy, Brooke, when? look at all these kids. When are you guys gonna have kids? And it'd be like, man, we're trying. The Lord doesn't have that for us. And like, that's still emotional to me because I can still taste what that was like. If you've been, if you experience it, if you're doing, if experiencing it right now or you've been there, you know. I just didn't think that would ever change. And, and now here we are four kids later. Don't need anybody uh, to be praying for us to have more kids. We're good. <laughs> but I remember my friend saying to this idea, hey, man, I'll, I'll mourn with you. I'll mourn with you. And will you please celebrate with me? 
And can there be space for both? And, and that, to me, was such a great picture for all of us. So that, if, so that if you're here and celebrating, you don't have to be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. You may know somebody's sad for a different reason, but you can share. Tell us what to celebrate with you, man, and let's, let's lock in and jump up and down and celebrate. And if you're here in mourning, you can tell us too. And we want to mourn with you. There's space in, in the family of God. There's space for both sides, and we want to be able to sympathize with you. Question for application. Will you sympathize with others despite your circumstances? Not demanding that people only meet you where you're at, but being willing to selflessly love and meet people where they're at. Number 10, getting along from the text. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. One another. This is the crucial word that shows us that Paul's still talking to the Roman Christians. Live in harmony with one another. The, the Foot of the cross is level. None of us can claim the high ground at the foot of the cross. All of us are sinners and we need Jesus. And therefore, because we realize what Jesus has done, hello, Romans chapters 1 to 8, all that Jesus has done for us, God demonstrated his great love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're spitting in Jesus' face. He still took the cross. He's given us forgiveness. He's justified us. He's adopted us. So good grief, if God's done all that in the vertical, we can love one another horizontally. Let's get along. Are you getting along? Actively loving other Mill Creekers with the gospel mind? Finally, avoid pride from the text. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that pride is a sin that Paul keeps coming back to and calling us to humility is crucial. We're not to be thinking too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, and in, in this verse 16, it says, don't be wise in your own sight. I've mentioned this quote before. I think it bears repeating again from Pastor Tim Keller. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. The question then for us, are you avoiding pride? Are you avoiding pride? You know, you might be here and you're thinking about getting along with those in the church and there actually may be somebody that's in your mind's eye that you're feeling like, yeah, I'm not getting along with them very well. But, but instead of having to avoid them in the foyer or instead if you walk, see them at Walmart and you're thinking, oh, I got to go down a different aisle because I'm trying to avoid them. Instead of avoiding it, Maybe you could ask the Holy Spirit, would you convict me of pride and show me in relationship to this person, what am I bringing to the table that's out of bounds here? Is there some sort of pride, Holy Spirit, that you need to convict me of that I can repent of and I can actually go to that person and say, oh my word, the Spirit convicted me. I've got this pride thing going on and I need to repent of it. What a great way to bring unity to the church. I know a lot of people want to hear the voice of the Lord, it seems to me. When you genuinely get on your knees and say, please convict me of sin, boy, the Lord don't hesitate on that one, does he? He answers that prayer, boom, brings right to mind. Here we are then at the end of the first section of how to love those inside the church, and we see Paul having given 11 dimensions of how a church is to love one another. 
11 facets of gospel love that for any church in any time, in any place, if this was what the church was known for, if our friends and neighbors who don't consider themselves Christians, if they came and they experienced this list, man, they could not call us hypocrites, could they? And this is a glorious way of thinking what the church could be. The world would know we are Christians by our love if this embodied us. So this then is how the Christians are to relate to those inside the church. But what about those outside? Second big idea. This is much shorter. How Christians love those outside the church from verses 17 to 21. Number one is live honorably. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul again is speaking to our reaction. Some might think if somebody inside the church is going to eye for an eye, I'm going to give it right back. And now he pivots it and says the same with those outside the church. When somebody treats you poorly, you don't give them some of your own medicine in this relationship either. Instead, we are to honor and live honorably in the sight of all. Remember the definition of honor? To treat somebody as if they're valuable and precious. So maybe our knee-jerk reaction is, yeah, 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 I'm supposed to do that if, they're, if we're both members of the same church. But even somebody who's not a Christian, I have to treat them that way? Yes. Well, I basically do. I mean, in my view, I'm honoring them. Well, it doesn't just say, in your sight, honor them. But do you see what Paul says? In the sight of all. Which means in your own mind, if you've sort of justified how you're treating people, and you're okay with it, but you've got people outside who are going, that doesn't smell right. That you're actually supposed to evaluate how, how is this love being received. You're to love one another in the sight of all. The question here, are you living honorable even when you're treated evil? Are you living honorable even when you're treated evil? Number two, to live peaceably from the text, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'm, I'm grateful that Paul gives this crucial caveat because there may be this tendency for us as Christians to go, okay, man, I need to live honorably and I need to live at peace. And so whatever those outside the church tell me to do, I guess I have to do since, since I'm commanded to live honorably and live at peace. But what Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, one of the ways I see this being manifested right now is there are people who are outside of the church who point their fingers at those inside the church and they say to us, you guys aren't being loving to us the way we want you to love us. You guys are holding the doctrines that we think are actually bad for the world and we want you to compromise what you believe and say that we're okay in the ways we want to live. And so Paul's not saying, I mean, whatever the outsiders ask us to do, you have to give in. He's saying, no, 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 so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. So we don't have to flush Romans 1 to 8 down the toilet just because somebody outside the church says, I don't like Romans 1 to 8. So far as it depends on you, we hold on to God's gospel truths, but then we're going to behave as peaceful as we can. Do you see how those are guardrails for us then? We treat everybody as valuable and precious, and then best we can... With gospel doctrine under our belt, we're going to live at peace. The question for application, peaceably. If, if you're here and you're like, man, I don't know how to sift through the difference. Like, 
when should I say you're right? When should I not? Man, talk to us. Talk to your life group. Talk to your friends. We'd love to help you process that. Finally, how do we love those outside the church? By overcoming evil with good. Verses 19 to 21 bring us to the end of our section. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. That's the big idea that Paul's giving here, and he starts it by saying, don't take revenge for yourself. When somebody outside the church comes at you, kicks you in the shin, so to speak, you don't kick them back. This is the third time that we've talked about this eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which sidebar, you should know. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which you may say, but that's Old Testament, Jeremy. That's Old Testament, but it's never implied in the Old Testament to be applied individually. God didn't give that to individuals to apply. He gave that to the governing authorities, which we're going to find out in Romans 13 next week. It's on politics. You want to hear a radioactive sermon? You better buckle up. See you next week, man. Bring a gas mask. It's crazy. (laughs) Romans 13, Paul says, it's the government and the authorities and the rulers who is given the responsibility of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's not ours as individuals. As individuals, we never retaliate. The way of Jesus is not to retaliate. He entrusts to God his responsibilities and authorities. And we let God repay. Christian, if you're here and you're like, man, those non-Christians, those godless pagans are really coming at me and I'm going to give them some of their own medicine. That isn't Christian. And Paul would say, no wonder. No wonder the world's looking at you and calling you hypocrites because that's what you're doing. Deuteronomy 32.35 tells Christians we don't avenge. We don't give people their own medicine. We trust God to do that. Proverbs 25.21 tells us how to beat evil. I don't know if you're competitive. I'm, I'm the most competitive person that I know. And if you think you're competitive, I'll beat you at that game too. <laughs> I'll be more competitive in my game of being competitive. I like competition. I like games. And here's how you win if you're facing evil. Oh, that's fun. How can I beat evil? The church versus evil. How do we overcome evil? Overcome evil by escalating and being more evil? No. That's how you start world wars. The way you defeat evil is with good. So when somebody hits you on the face, you turn the other cheek. When somebody says, I want your cloak, you give them your shirt also. If somebody says, walk a mile with me, you walk two with them. Isn't this the way of Jesus? Who overcame evil with good? And what is this heaping, burning coals business? That's always a weird part of this. If you've read the Bible before, you're like, what are they actually meaning? I did the homework. The answer is nobody really knows. (laughs) Nobody really knows. It's a metaphor that has been lost in the last 2,000 years. Obviously, the Romans understood the metaphor. Here's the meaning of the metaphor, that when somebody does evil to you, if you're sincere and you do good to them, it shames them in a way. Maybe not the first time, but eventually. You just keep doing good, they keep cursing you, and you just keep blessing them. And they keep taking, and you just keep giving. Eventually, they go, you're crazy. You must just be crazy. 
and evil is losing in that situation. Good is winning. That's the phrase. Here's the question for application. Are you overcoming evil with good? Are you overcoming evil with good? But having come to the end of our text, having considered everything that Paul tells us, I just, I, I would be surprised if anybody's in here right now and you'd go, oh, phew, that's it? Man, I'm crushing the list. I got 11 ways I'm loving those inside the church. I got the three ways I'm loving those outside the church. Man, when I, st- when I sit down with Paul someday in heaven, I'm going to let him know he should have put some more horsepower in this text because I'm getting it done, my man. I have 100% perfectly fulfilled everything that the text says. I just don't think that's any of us here. I mean, if you're like me, maybe not every single one of those punches you in the face, but there's a couple that are just like, ouch. And, and frankly, there's too many times where I really am being a hypocrite. I'm not, I'm not acting this way. And so what are we to do, church? What are we to do when we come to the end of this, this scripture and we realize, I'm not getting this done? Do we just try harder? Work, think present better, and i got to follow the list. Honey, when I wake up tomorrow, just remind me, follow the list better. So what we do? Hear the good news. Hear the good news. Here's the best part of this sermon. You and I, we fail at the list all the time, but there was one who did the list. There was one. There was one who loved genuinely, who loved like others were really in his family. There was one who perfectly honored, he perfectly served, perfectly rejoiced, and he was patient in tribulation. There was one who lived and prayed constantly and was generous and he blessed others and he sympathized and got along with others, all the while avoiding pride. There was one who perfectly related to those that were in God's community, but despite the ways that he perfectly loved, he got treated with great evil, and others did not live peaceable with him. Instead, others sought revenge against him. Others pretended to be God, and they took out their wrath on him. Yet, despite the evil at the cross, Jesus defeated evil with good. There at the cross, Jesus transformed all of the evil to bring us peace with God. Here's the good news. For all who repent of their ways, all the ways that you sin and fail in life, whether it's Romans 12, 9 to 21 ways, or whether it's all the other ways and the baggage that you've brought in this morning and all the sin and shame and condemnation and guilt you're under, if you repent of your sins, you will be saved. Be forgiven. Past present, and future. He will forgive you, make you white as snow. Okay, pastor, but what if I don't feel like living the way the text calls me to live? What if in my heart, I believe that I'm forgiven, but what if in my heart, tomorrow, somebody in the church does something real rotten to me, and I just want to kick them in the shins? Or what if somebody outside the church does something really rotten to me, and I want to kick them in the shins? What do I do Then, oh yes, what is the motivation that changes us to want to live this way? If Paul was here to answer that question, he'd say, look back at Romans chapters 1 to 8. Look what Christ did for you. 
Don't you see you are under the judgment of God and you are going to be found guilty? But Jesus Christ, he lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you couldn't live. And because of Jesus, you are not only forgiven and saved, but now he changes your heart and he empowers you to live the way he desires. Here then what is so powerful is Jesus not only saves you, but he changes your heart so you love what he loves. So if in your heart you say, man, I don't want to do this thing, well, then you need gospel. You need to come back to Romans 1 to 8 and get that gospel clear in your mind, remembering who God is, what Jesus did, your great sin, and his great salvation. Church, let us commit ourselves and pledge ourselves again to the love of Christ because of what Christ has accomplished. It allows us then to be the church Christ would want for us, that the world would know, would know we are Christians by our love. May we follow the disciple John's famous final words. Little children, love one another because of the gospel. Will you pray with me? And now, Christ, would you take these words and would you by the power of the spirit drill them into the heart of your people for those who don't know you i pray they would be saved for those who do i pray they would be encouraged and motivated to want to love and obey you thank you for your word make us more like christ in jesus name amen Let's stand together.
to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.